Welcome to Rocked 2021 on BCR. I'm Sen McCluskey and I'm joined by James Carroll to introduce you to our speakers. Ben Kieran Glennon spent a year in the Gweltacht learning and socialising through Irish. Tonight, five years on, he wonders to us all how Irish could only be a part of his life while living in rural Waterford. Tonight, he asks the question, Call Will, the Irish. Five years ago, I spent six class living in the Ring Gweltacht outside Dungarvan, County Waterford. I went to school, made friends and played sports, all through Irish. Fast forward five years to 2021, where for the past 15 months, I've been stuck at home because of the coronavirus. I've spent thousands of hours in my room, listening to music, watching TV and reading books, but all in English. When I turn on my phone in the evenings to open YouTube, I'm met with hundreds of English language videos. When I open Spotify, it's Drake and not Oroche the Vahawalia that's on my playlist. I am, and pretty much all of us are, immersed in English pop culture and entertainment. But I got to thinking, why? Why is it that after a year of being stuck at home, on my phone, in front of my TV, that not a single song, show, or movie I put on was in Irish, the language I did everything through five years ago? And what does this say about the state of our national language? It's got to be possible for a 17-year-old to find entertainment online in Irish. And so, with the world shut down outside my house, I decided I was going to look. In my search for Irish language entertainment, though, really all I could think of was Afric, a show I remembered watching in the Gweltacht. But even that could only take me so far, and I think I'll lose my mind if I have to watch Afric's quest to get a boyfriend for the tenth time. He's just not into you, Afric. After doing a bit more digging, I found Corkamillish, a short film solely about a blind man having an asthma attack in a train after someone steals an inhaler. But this is definitely not the sort of film we need if we want to interest young people in Irish. And so after being frankly quite disturbed by all that Irish film had to offer, I accepted that Irish movies might not be the way forward. I decided to try music. Now I'm sure most of us have heard of Kalosh de Lurgan, who do Irish covers of English pop songs. And although I love Aaron and Guppon and Exmine of Sword as much as the next guy, I wanted to try and find some original Irish music. We've got to have our own artists and songs, surely not just translations. Now, it did take me a while to find any Irish language music written this side of the 18th century, but I finally managed to find an act that I actually liked. Kneecap, a rap duo from Belfast. They seemed decent enough, not that I understood much though, other than CO Father C was probably the Irish for cocaine, but it was actually refreshing to hear rap in our native language. But when I looked into them, I found out that Radio Nguelta claimed their music was too inappropriate, and even refused to play it during the day. In doing this, they removed possibly the only music on their station that might actually get young people even somewhat interested in Irish. But oh, don't worry, because they're still playing the absolute hood classic that is Peggy Nichermore. And so, it was after this largely fruitless search for pop culture and entertainment in Irish that I realised there's a complete lack of both, especially for young people. This makes it really difficult for us to practice our Irish outside the classroom. I mean, why bother when you can't watch movies or shows you like in Irish? There's barely any Irish pop music to listen to, and you don't speak it in your daily life. While I was in Ring, Irish was the language we talked in, the language of sport, the language we'd slag each other in. We actually had a reason to learn it. But now, when I don't speak it with anyone, learning it just doesn't seem important. But although most of us don't speak Irish at all outside the classroom, realistically, we probably could, at least a little bit. Although we mightn't like learning it, after 12 years of Irish class, something is bound to stick. 
And sure, all we learn in a lot of those classes is how to discuss poetry and how to write about that timpish that the land to Siri have been milking since first year. But there definitely are a lot of people who have enough Irish to speak it with their friends and families. But most of us don't speak it, myself included. Why not though? Maybe it's that we think it's just uncool or awkward, or that we won't be able to enjoy conversations in Irish as much as English. And to be honest, considering that most of the Irish I've learnt this year has been how to analyse a poem about divorce, I don't think we can be blamed for thinking it's at least a little bit uncool. But it doesn't have to be. Irish is good for so much more than what the Department of Education may tell us it is. My time in the Gwaltuk showed me that Irish really can be a living language. It's a shame that we don't have more pop culture in Irish, but even without it we can still use Irish for small things, like when we play sports or when we talk to our families in the car or at the table. Now look, I'm definitely not saying we should turn Black Rock into a Gwaeltucht and cast out all English language influence from our lives, but why not try to use some of the Irish we do have? As a country, we have some of the richest culture, history and traditions in the world, and we're all generally quite proud to be Irish. So why not take more pride in our native language? Why not try to use it every now and again, if only a few words? Ak is fúnia hóse. It's up to us. Gurmila Mahagov. Michael will now talk to us about the importance of being grateful. Michael has gone through enlightenment over the summer, and tonight he will give you all a heartfelt and hopefully thought-provoking speech about the little things in life and how improving our gratitude for them can improve our physical and mental selves. Be there, be caring, be truthful, be grateful. Be grateful. This simple instruction is riveted into every Blackrock student's brain from the very minute they first enter the college, with Mr. McGinty reminding us of the motto at every assembly and posters around the school ensuring we never forget it. But do we ever stop and wonder if we are really grateful and what are we grateful for? Over the last year and a bit, the news and general consensus of people is that things aren't great right now. There's a pandemic. Afghanistan fell to the Taliban. Inflation is occurring in America. Me, I'm legally blind. Without my glasses, I couldn't see two inches in front of my face. Couldn't read the shampoo bottle in the shower, even if I wanted to. But anyway, the point is that things aren't particularly great right now, and these things could easily get me down, and no one would blame me. But why feel down when all of us have a lot to be grateful for? That delicious cup of coffee in the morning, the look on your dog's face when they see you, your mum asking how your day was. All these things can brighten your day, but only if you let them. I had surgery performed on my eyes in late June of this year, with contact lenses being implanted into them between my lens and my iris. A cutting-edge surgery, pardon the pun, that, while classified as a vanity procedure for most who get it, was my only option to save my vision from degenerating further than it already had. I was already at a minus 18 prescription, a very rare case. On top of that, my only connection to the rugby programme in Blackrock is that I have an astigmatism, so my eyes are shaped like rugby balls. Anyway, my sight, in just two days, went from as bad as it gets to about as good as it gets, an outcome not even my optician had predicted. Since my surgeries, I found a lot of gratitude in the little things, from being able to read that shampoo bottle that I really couldn't care what it says on it, to appreciating my friends when I had to stay at home for two weeks before the operation. My sight, something that for a time was leaving me before my very eyes, was all of a sudden the best part of my day. Prior to my surgeries, I would wake up and not be able to see at all until I put my glasses on. Any time they fell off or anything, I just wouldn't be able to see. I doubt many of you can relate to the panicked searching on the floor when I couldn't find my glasses in the morning, knowing I just wouldn't be able to see if I didn't find them. Close your eyes, everyone. Not if you're driving, but really close them. 
Now, imagine trying to find something that you've lost on the floor. While 18 years of this made me very used to it, life after those experiences has been amazing. All these things are very specific to me, so let's talk about things that apply to everyone, not just here in studio, but listening uh, everywhere. To even be listening to Blackrock Radio is something to be thankful for, as we're all privileged to be part of it. And that's not just because of this amazing opportunity and radio station. This could be your first time listening after years away, or the first time you've sat down and, and listened today and relaxed. Gratitude is different for everyone. The fact that what I'm grateful for is something as minor as my cup of coffee in the morning shows how life really isn't too bad. But it's not just us here in studio and listening who have a right to be grateful. The beauty of gratitude is that it's relative. Anyone can be grateful. From someone living in a Los Angeles mansion to a Maasai hut, gratitude needn't come from simply being able to see your being from a privileged background. It can be having a roof over your head or food to eat. It can be having a loyal pet or the love of a parent. It can even be a friend asking how you are, but it's all about finding what you can be grateful for. And gratitude is good for your health too. According to recent studies, people of all ages and various nationalities who have more grateful dispositions report fewer health complaints than their less grateful counterparts. In another study, it found similar results. A gratitude journal is something that reaps huge rewards for those willing to do it. It involves taking time out each week to just jot down a few things that you're grateful for. It could be something as simple as the weather being nice that day, but it's all about putting you in a positive frame of mind. A simple prayer in the evening or morning has a similar effect. A Berkeley study found that keeping a gratitude journal for just six weeks led to better sleep, less illness, and more overall happiness. Hard to argue with that. It's very easy to be caught up in the negative news and thoughts that circulate, but if you take a moment to look around and appreciate the little things around you, you just might find some joy. Did you notice the amazing shows we've been having on BCR, or appreciate the weather outside today? I'd say most of you didn't. Ask yourself, why didn't I? I've really been blown away by the gratitude I've found recently. Sitting at the back of the class and being able to see. Reading a sign without squinting. Waking up with vision. All these things I'm sure you all take for granted, but they've given me gratitude and joy. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle once said, It has long been a thought of mine that the little things are infinitely the most important. And I agree. Gratitude for what is around us, and gratitude for our own talents and qualities, not only makes you happier, but healthier too. So, to echo the college motto, be there, be caring, be truthful, but most importantly, be grateful. Thank you. George Francis is no stranger to difficulty. As a member of our very own SCT, senior chess team, he's often been left wondering, why even try? But tonight, he's going to attempt to convince you, perhaps a more arduous task than facing off against Gonzaga on the chessboards. Why do we do things that are difficult when there is no apparent reward? George Francis, everyone. There are few things on this planet that drain the soul of hope as much as a seemingly impossible task. Whether it be maths homework that only gets more confusing the longer you look at it, or trying to beat my dad in anything that isn't a video game. These challenges can seem as hopeless as trying to eat soup with chopsticks. One way or another, we've all been put in a position where gouging our eyes out and throwing our collective corpses into a tank of starved piranhas becomes a considerably nicer alternative to whatever Geneva Convention defined madness we would otherwise have to put ourselves through. That being said, it's pretty safe to say that we've all gone through these rough patches in one piece. So, I'm here to ask a question you're all probably very familiar with. Why? Why did I do that? Well, as any question aimed towards an audience would, the answer to it varies. 
For most cases, the answer is simple. The reward. The fruit of the labor. The spoils of the toils. Just as Theodore Roosevelt once said, nothing in the world is worth having or doing unless it means effort, pain, or difficulty. There are many, almost too many examples of this risk-for-reward trade-off in our lives to list off, but as a sixth-year student, I am legally obligated to use the leaving cert as one of them. I have not yet come within 60 feet of any of my exam papers, and I already know that if I don't give 110%, I will very likely be writing those papers with my own blood. Time and time again, I have heard that I will never do a harder exam, and the horror stories of what lanes people will go to to study harder. I don't think that it comes to anyone's surprise then that this diabolical test of willpower comes with a reward of equal caliber. Having an extensive choice of courses to choose from, which can put you on a path to further success. This type of action is an example of what is known as positive risk taking, which is a process that involves the identification of potential benefit or harm that would come as a result of the action. In this case, the potential for personal growth is what draws us to the challenge and motivates us to rise to beat it even if it requires an immense amount of effort on our part. This deliberation of risk versus reward impacts our decision-making more than we may realize. Picking up a new sport or hobby, for an example. I, for one, picked up bo boxing over the summer after many years of picking up and then dropping sports. I went in knowing that I'd be bad at first, since I had zero experience going in, and that my lack of energy would make the training about as difficult as trying to see with my eyes closed. But I went along with it anyway because whatever immediate pains I would have when I started would be worth the long-term health benefits and enjoyment that I would get out of it and I would miss out on if I didn't continue, even if it meant getting punched in the face. Now, while these are all examples of difficult things and logical reasons as to why we may do them, I don't think anyone would look back and wonder what mixture of bleach and pebbles they consume to make them consider doing it. I don't want something logical. I want something back-breaking. I want something like climbing Everest without an oxygen tank. Now, it may be old news, but ascending Everest without a supply of oxygen was considered completely impossible until 1978, when Reinhold Messner and Peter Habler decided that trying to achieve the impossible would be a neat thing to have written on their epitaph. They were called lunatics for attempting it, risking severe brain damage, if not death, just to prove that it was possible to climb without oxygen, which is like trying to swim the English Channel with an anchor tied to your leg. It was already enormous, enormously difficult, but now you're just showing off. And yet, on the 8th of May, 1978, they both had reached the peak. Messner in particular described himself as nothing more than a single narrow gasping lung, floating over the mists and summits. This wasn't merely a world record. This was an act of absolute defiance which reevaluated the capabilities of the human body and our potential as a species. But once again I ask, why would anyone put themselves through such torment for basically nothing? And that's because it doesn't need to be a reward. The reward acts as an incentive which can help motivate us towards our goal. But it is our self-drive and free will that provokes us to do a task and pushes us to succeed. It is not the carrot dangling from a stick that moves the horse. It's the horse that moves the horse. Just as it isn't the reward that completes the goal, it's our ambition and willingness to succeed and claim the reward that gets the job done. What I'm trying to say is that the reward is not a necessary factor in what makes us do difficult things. If we only did what strictly benefited us, like some sort of machine, incapable of seeing past its programming, we would not only be incapable of emotions such as compassion and selfless acts such as charity, 
But it would also be very possible that we would still be living in dirt huts as hunter-gatherers. After all, the strategy was working, and advancing ourselves could put ourselves at risk. This strategy of no risk, little reward may work to prolong the existence of a species, but it will never result in that species prospering like we have. Okay, but what if somebody's already done it? Well, if there's one thing which spurs me on more than anything else, it's doing something simply for the glory of having done it. I am by no stretch of the imagination a valedictorian. I'm in none of the top classes, and I can sometimes struggle in areas where others have no difficulty. I also constantly feel insecure when hearing about the achievements of others. I feel less accomplished as a person when I hear of how everyone else around me has their life in order and has accomplished more than I have. But rather than wallowing in my own despair over what others have done, I use it as a motivation to push myself in the areas that I do struggle in to show not just to others but to myself as well that when I set myself to a task, it gets done. And in the few areas of my life where I think that I'm uncontested, I push myself anyway, placing handicaps on myself and self-imposed challenges that have no reward other than the glory of being foolish enough to attempt and conquer it. And there is no greater feeling than have someone waltz on up to me and say, George, why did you beat that giant to death with a spoon? And I look them dead in the eyes and say, because I can. Why do I do this? Why not? What is there to learn from taking the easy path? Where is the pride in staying in your comfort zone? What is the point in giving less than our best? Ladies, gents, and fools alike, I know nothing of the true nature of the pains you've endured. But regardless, I wish you all the very best of luck when it all comes time to face it. It has been an honor speaking to all of you, and I hope I may speak to all of you again. But until then, I bid thee farewell. Has anyone here watched The Matrix? Does anyone here understand the matrix? Does anyone here know the difference between the blue and the red pill? Or what exactly they mean? Is anyone here able to apply the matrix into parts of their everyday lives? Yes. No? Neither do I, but tonight we have Zach Egan Ruan to talk to us about the importance of the matrix. Have you ever had a dream that you were so sure was real? What if you were unable to wake from that dream? How would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world? Those were the words spoken by Lawrence Fishburne's character Morpheus in the movie The Matrix, released back in 1999. The movie itself is all about humans and a specially chosen computer hacker named Neo who will rise up against the machines enslaving mankind inside a computer simulation called The Matrix. The Matrix is used as an energy source to power the machine species, but that's all Hollywood. But Morpheus did actually have a point. Could we be living inside a computer simulation exactly like the Matrix? Well, first off, we need to refer to Morpheus a lot, as he explains to the savior of humanity, Neo, who is known as the One because, you know, he's going to soon free all the humans from the Matrix. He asks, well, what is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see, then real is simply electrical signals interpreted by your brain. How do I know this? 
While your five senses, when each of them are active, can send electrical signals directly to your brain in an instant. Just like that. But what if you notice something seems different with your senses? They're acting up. Something's not right. Well, that thing that's making you think this is not your brain. It's your mind. Your mind is what makes things real in your head and actually makes you think something is actually happening. Deja vu is commonly referred to this. Have you ever seen or done something you could have sworn you'd seen before? That's called deja vu, and it's your mind playing tricks on you. One of the biggest, most common tricks our minds can play on us right now at the moment is called the Mandela Effect. The Mandela Effect is named after a phenomenon in 2013 that occurred when most people who heard the news that the former South African president Nelson Mandela had actually died in prison. They'd sworn that they'd already experienced this in the 1980s and vividly remember tuning in that night and watching it on TV. Now, this couldn't have been true. Nelson Mandela died of a respiratory infection in 2013. These contested memories sparked mass uproar across social media and on the internet. Odd thing is, is that it's still currently being challenged again today. This time with a children's book series called The Berenstain Bears. These books were written many years ago by a couple for children, but some people believe it was spelt much differently from when they were children. They believe it was actually spelt with an E and not with an A in the Steen. Could this have been a glitch in the Matrix? We may never know. Another instance for this is also doppelgangers, which are people who literally look like identical carbon copies of each other. The big ones, however, which are very similar to the Mandela effect, are called glitches in the matrix. These are when something literally not possible is happening right before your eyes. For example, some people have told stories of themselves, driving on motorways late at night and seeing drivers in the opposite lanes, with no faces, no eyes, no expressions, no mouth, nothing. There are a few people in the world today that actually begin to question their reality, including the great Elon Musk. And we can easily compare these people to the certain red pill and blue pill given in the Matrix movies when people begin to question their imprisonment inside the Matrix. These pills are a direct resemblance to your brain and your mind when you begin to question your reality. I'm sure when you question your reality, you'll feel a lot like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole and trying to find an answer to the question that drives your mind crazy. Do I exist? Am I even real? Does everything around me exist? The pills are the next step to questioning your reality. You take the blue pill, the story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. Your mind basically abandons the question. You take the red pill, 
Well, you stay in Wonderland, and you find out how deep the rabbit hole really goes. Your mind is going to find out more if you take the red pill, but we might already be living inside a matrix of our own making, just like Neo. The matrix is everywhere. It is all around us, even now in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. The matrix that exists as of today, the one in which we can never free our own minds from, is our own technology. Our smartphones, laptops, iPads, gaming consoles, computers, each one of these is something we feel that we can't live without today. For years, we've allowed ourselves to become dependent on machines to survive, that if either one of these got taken away from us, I'm sure people wouldn't even know what to do until we can actually have these essential items in our life back. Are we literally that careless that we don't realize the truth that we're already probably in a matrix of our own making? So, does the matrix exist? Yes and no. No, we are not enslaved by machines and used as a power source for all their needs. But we are inside a matrix frequently. It's super glue to us, and it forms a bond between two that can lead to dire consequences if broken. It's a bond between a human being and this, a single piece of technology. Ladies and gentlemen, this is The Matrix. Thank you, and have a good night. Thank you, Zach, for that compelling speech. That brings Rocked 2021 to a close. Thanks for listening.